So today's time in the Word, we're going to look at answers to some of the hard realities that come to our lives at times and that we have to face as Christ followers. So here's a few questions that we'll kind of contemplate a little bit. How do you get ready to face life when one that you love deeply, who's been your mentor, your teacher, your model for your life, is telling you, you're not going to see me anymore? How can real sorrow, and we all will face real sorrow, how can sorrow and grief actually turn into joy? And so what is needed in those moments to have the kind of biblical perspective when sorrow comes and pain comes into our lives. So with Christ and in a relationship with Him, the door is open for us to have the right kind of perspective in the sorrowful moments, in the moments where we are longing for some perspective to give us direction for the now and also to prepare us for the days ahead. We need hope. When hope is lost, sorrow comes, and that's where the 11 are. Jesus has been telling them, I'm gone. Sorrow was taken over because their hope was he was going to restore Israel by being this great king. And all he wants to talk about is dying. And so they just are having a hard time. He's just talking about you're not going to be able to see me anymore. And their hearts have sunk and they've lost hope. And so when that happens, sorrow comes. I read an interesting story about perspective from a young boy. A man walked up to a Little League baseball game one day. And he asked the boy in the dugout, what's the score? And he said, 18 to nothing, we're behind. And the man said, well, I bet y'all are discouraged. And he said, no, why should I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. And so I, I, I want to I remind us this morning that at times it seems like the world is having victory after victory after victory. And I just want to remind us this morning that our God has already gone to bat. He has already swung. He has defeated death. He has defeated the grave. He has crushed the enemy. And we have hope today because of who He is. So many of the things that can bring us joy in our lives can also sometimes bring us a bit of grief. And the reason they do is when those moments change or those circumstances change... They steal our joy, and they steal our joy for this reason, because we kind of in that moment wrongly look at God as someone who has disappointed us. He has allowed something to come in, and sometimes we even ask the question, things were going so well, why couldn't He have just let it continue to be a smooth path and continue to go on? But we've all come to, I hope you've come to know this. If you're younger, you may not know this yet. Those of us older should know this. That smooth paths do not always stay, do they? There are things come, there are challenges that come that we have to face and we have to deal with. So God has not let things slip by Him. He has not been unaware of anything concerning our lives and concerning the world. So in our text today, Jesus is aiming for the eleven to understand as they are walking that they needed, though they are sorrowful, they needed to get ready that there's going to be a great joy that is going to come and they're going to know it in just a few days. So all of this hearts that are sinking and this lack of understanding is going to come to great clarity when they see Him on Sunday night. Most of their expectations that they have of Jesus 
are going to be left in crumbled pieces in the Garden of Gethsemane. Keep in mind, they've, they've been ready. Even though Jesus has been telling them the kind of Messiah that He is, they, they still have the mindset, because they asked Him during the last week, Lord, when even, even after He's resurrected and before He ascends, they ask Him, are you going to restore Israel right now? They still had this idea that He was going to restore the nation. And so when He's arrested and Judas kisses Him, He's arrested, He's carried away, they flee, on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane were all of these false expectations that they had of what? Their plans for Jesus' life. Not Jesus' plans for their life. Because what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane was what? That was Jesus' plan for their life. He would be betrayed. So that He would go before the religious leaders. So that He would be betrayed. So that He would go to the cross. And so that He would die in our place but those moments let's just be honest in our lives in certain places where we are standing where we are living and our expectations have just crumbled to the ground we had great plans we may have had great intentions great ideas but those expectations and those plans have crumbled to the ground and so what does a christ follower do in a moment when these falsely held beliefs as good intentioned as they are, have crumbled to the ground and they can't be fixed. What do you do? Well, we're going to see it today. You've got to get biblical again. That's always the answer. So we have ideas. They crumble. God has purposes and plans, not just ideas. And His plans, I remind us, stand fixed and firm. And so this is kind of where they are. They have an expectation of Jesus. He's arrested. It's going to crumble. He's telling them, I'm going to go away. They're sorrowful. And so he's going to address this and try to help prepare them that it's just going to be a brief amount of time. And that there's going to be this glorious joy that's going to enter into their lives. And so for all of us, the reality of life consists of all kinds of moments, both joyful and sorrowful. And though they have been told for quite a while by Jesus that His arrest, His death was coming, they still, listen, they still expected something different than Jesus' words. Because their ideas trumped in the moment what Jesus had been telling them. Now this becomes a wrestling point for all of us in our lives if we do this. Where our expectations of God crumble against the reality of the words of God and the will of God and what God does. And so we have these expectations of what He ought to do, and if they don't line up with Scripture, then they they will run into the reality of His words and they will crumble. They should have been making the adjustment in their mind. He's a truth teller. He's been telling us He's going to die and He's going to rise again on the third day. And so they should have been adjusting that direction, but they weren't. They should not have been expecting him to come around to their view of matters and their view of things in regard to what he should do. By the way, he never came around to adjusting to their perspective. But we will see today that he speaks into their perspective to help them. So let's talk about the first thing this morning. I want to talk about the death and the resurrection for a moment. And let's look at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer... And again, a little while, and you will see me. 
So this whole section we're about to dive into is about replacing their sorrow with joy. That's his aim. They are sorrowful. So all of this he's talking with them is to replace their sorrowful hearts, to give them a perspective, to get to the place of joy, to get them to a place of joy that lasts. Jesus was an expert at saying things that the listener had to think a little bit deeper on and had to contemplate on, maybe needed to ask more questions about. And while these words are simple, they brought confusion to the eleven. And so Jesus is phrasing and speaking about here of His death and His resurrection and also, I believe, about the coming of the Spirit. And He's getting ready, them ready for the dramatic change that is about to enter into their lives. What an incredible reality it was for these men. They experienced so many things. So they have seen Him up close and personal for three years. As they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, they are seeing Him. They will see Him after the resurrection. And they are seeing Him now as they are in His presence in heaven. So these guys, again, experiencing these things in a moment, a little bit confused, but they had such a glorious reality of the things that they had experienced. And sadness is going to dominate their lives over the next 72 hours. And the sadness will go from just deep sorrow to the highest of joys. John writes in John 14, 19, earlier he's already said this. He said, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live. And so those who live, those who are alive in Christ, they see the glory of who Jesus is and they know Him. And on the evening of the resurrection, Luke writes these words in Luke twenty four forty one. And while they still disbelieved, He's coming to the room, and there He is. He's standing in front of them. He's in the room. He's present. And while they still disbelieved, listen to the phrasing, they still disbelieved for joy. It's this, I, I can't fathom the reality that there He is. And they just, in a, in a moment, are just overwhelmed with that. And they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. And then he just said a very human statement. Got anything to eat, guys? What a glorious reality that the risen Christ is so personable, so real to us. So what is Jesus referring to in verse 16? A little while you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. Well, there's been four perspectives of this. One is he's referring to the second coming, and, and I don't think that can be the case because they're not going to be around to see the second coming. Um, so another perspective is this is about the resurrection, that he will die, they won't be able to see him, he'll be in the tomb, he will rise, they will see him again. And so I think a big part of that is connected to that. Another aspect, probably likely as well as he's referring to, we've been in the context of Jesus speaking about who? The Holy Spirit. He would come, they would see Jesus again in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I think probably these latter two are the big dominant um, perspectives um, in regard to this, that they would see him in the cross and the resurrection, or really in the resurrection, and they would see him in regard to his coming uh, when the Spirit comes. But I just want to talk about the cross and the resurrection just for a moment. So I believe that's the the heart of what he's talking about here. 
A little while you will see me no longer, and a little while you will see me. For the 11 that are still walking with Jesus and they're around Jesus at this moment, he reminds them that he would be leaving them briefly in his death. And it would bring great sorrow to them. The weekend's going to be really hard on these men. And they won't be able to see him, and, and they can't really fathom that. It's, it's just still a little bit overwhelming for them. But they don't need to get stuck there because there is great joy that is coming. They will see him again. I remind us, as he reminded them, the cross is not an end. It was just a new beginning of a relationship that they already had with him. It would move to new heights. It would move to a new depth of their experience with what would come. The cross would bring a permanence to their lives that they had not known. This short-lived separation from Christ would be worth it in just a little while. In a matter of hours in the span of their lifetime, it would be over. And you know, the glory of the cross transforms us, does it not? It is transforming to us. And so, a little while you will not see me, and yet a little while you will see me. So this shocking moment of his death one weekend would become the anthem of the church that for 2,000 years the church has been singing, proclaiming, preaching about the cross. Look at the book of Acts. They preach the cross. Look at the letters. Bold declarations of the power and the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ. Our anthem is the cross of Jesus So not only is he referring to the cross here, but he's also referring to the resurrection. And again, a little while, you will see me. Though it is hard for them to even fathom the fullness of the meaning that they will not see him and yet see him again. We have come to know that this statement by Jesus is marvelous. Even in the Old Testament, it was affirming God just does things upside down, right? Even in the Old Testament, it is affirming that the rejection of Jesus would end up being marvelous in what it would bring about. This is what the psalmist writes in 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, the psalmist writes. That yet the rejection of Jesus was, yes, tragic. God had come to His people to love them and to reveal the Father. And and they rejected Him. And yet the work that came about because of that rejection is to the great glory of God. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So we're going to talk about joy today. And as we're at this point, Jesus makes reference to what the source of their joy would be. It would be the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the two most important things that we must ground our faith in. We must know that there is such security in that great reality of the cross and the resurrection. Both of them remind us that there can be joy here on the earth and that greatest joy is for us in the days ahead in heaven. Let's look at the second thing. Look at 17 and 18. So they're confused. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. By the way, let me just say this. They have not spoken 
since early on in John chapter 14. They've just been listening. Jesus has been dominating talking. They've been listening. And now they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's talking about this. And they turn to one another to try to figure out what does he mean, what is happening, what is taking place. And so he's been telling them about all these different subjects, all these incredible, important things. And at this late hour and their time with him, they remain in a state of confusion. It is clear that they don't ask out loud questions at this particular point in time, nor do they try to think it through and dive deep. They just turn to one another to try to figure out what's going on. Let me give us several dangers that will rob joy from our lives as disciples that we learn from him, them in this moment. I want to give you four of them that can kind of get in the way, keep us in a state of confusion. If we don't understand his words, it will rob us. And the first one, the fourth one's not going to be up there, but the, the first one is this. It's when we have a lack of desire. When our desire wanes and we're not pursuing Christ, this lack of desire kind of keeps us where we are. So there he is, just a few feet from them. He said these words, a little while you'll see me, and again a little while um, you, you won't see me, and you will see me. He's just a few yards away from some of them. For some of them, he's just a few feet away. And instead of walking faster and getting in the front of the line and going, hold the trip. I got some questions. Nobody does it. They turn to one another and ask one another, what is he talking about? And so they have a a lack of desire in the moment to ask more questions, to, to find out more information from him. Sometimes when you read this, and sometimes we're just like them, it seems as if they're kind of along for the ride. It's incredibly joyful. It's spiritual. You're walking with God And so they're along for the ride without ever really grasping the fullness of what Jesus is saying. And so at times in our life when we have these moments where we're like, I don't understand, and and we need better comprehension and understanding of things, go to Jesus. Ask Him. Dive into the Word and look and see if the Scripture has a direction. So one of the things that can keep us from moving forward And our sorrow is a lack of desire. Second one is the lack of a a disciplined life. And so they were invited by Jesus to walk with him, to learn from him. They had the greatest teacher who's ever been on the planet to learn from. And yet they seemed often to be in a fog for much of the time. So how does someone who has the greatest teacher in the world, spiritual teacher, God himself, still struggle And wrestle with understanding things. And I think one of those is that they weren't disciplined enough to study, ask more questions, listen, ask, 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 seek, ask, knock, to get more information. I look around this room and I know most, yeah, I know most everybody fairly well. The maturity that has come to our lives has come because we have been disciplined. For a big part of our life, to read the Word, listen to the Word, to apply the Word in years, weeks, and years 
stack up upon one another of walking in the truth of God's word and it brings a spiritual maturity in our life because of the discipline to read and to walk to read and to walk out the truth so this probably in the last six months of his life has been a major theme of him telling them I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again and so he's been telling them this They've had opportunity to ask the questions that they need and to pursue and to dig deeper, to adjust their view of what they want Jesus to be and do, to adjust it to what Jesus has been telling them, what He is going to do and who He is. And I've learned in my own life, and I know that you probably have as well, that if I will stay in the pursuit to know the truth, I will be disciplined to stay in the truth, to know what's said. That discipline eventually leads me to come to an understanding of the truth and a better grasp of what that is. But if I just give up and I'm not disciplined to do that, I just kind of stay stuck and I'm not moving forward into the joy that God has for me. That's why Jesus said 10 times, 11 times, but 10 times in a certain context in John chapter 15, you must abide in me. And if you will be disciplined to stay connected to me, I am the source of life you will bear fruit if you abide in my love if you abide in my word all of these things will come to fruition in your life that i've been telling you this disciplined life of of abiding and remaining in me and at the end of those 10 times that jesus says abide 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 listen to what he says these things that i've spoken this john 15 11 these things i've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So one of the reasons we don't live in joy the way that we should is because we have a lack of desire, a lack of pursuing Him. We have a lack of of being disciplined and, and walking and abiding and staying connected to Him. Here's the third reason. Is there's a lack of, because of those first two, there's a lack of knowing the true essence of what life really is. We get confused. And we begin to pursue other things other than Christ. So if we don't have a desire for Him and there's not a disciplined life of pursuing Him and, and persevering and walking through things and, and abiding in Him and abiding in His love and uh, abiding in His Word, then we're not going to have joy. So the lack of desire and the lack of discipline leads to us eventually just not knowing much at all and staying in a place of immaturity and just kind of knowing the basics about things. We as His disciples, though, should be known for our desire of Him. We should be known for our discipline. And we should be known as the people who know who God is and what God says. Here's the fourth reason. And this is really where they are on this night, though the other things are factors with this. This isn't up on the screen. This is a new edition. Um, they have a lack of hope. They have a lack of hope. When there's a lack of hope in regard to today, that there's going to be an outcome that's from this that's good, and there's a lack of hope about the future, it steals joy. Lack of hope steals joy. David knew about this. And so he wrote these sacred words in Psalm 42, 5. He, he does this. He looks down right here to his chest, and he speaks... His mouth speaks to his heart. And David says these words. Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
Why are you in turmoil within me? So he, asked, he posed the question to his heart. So why are you so down? Why is joy gone? And then he speaks the answer to his heart. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And in this moment, the disciples, the eleven, they lack hope. Why? Jesus says, I'm going to be gone. In a little while, you're not going to see me. In a little while, you will see me. And they're confused about it. But disciples are to be marked by knowing. That means a desire. That means a disciplined life. And when the desire and a disciplined life to pursue Him and, and to know His Word, we will know the essence of life, that He is life. And we can't find it anywhere else. And when hope is gone, the heart sinks and it stills joy. And that's where they are. And so Jesus is going to speak tenderly into their lives because he knows our heart. Let's look, look at 19. So Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Let me pose this question to us this morning. Um, we all do this, not just with God, but another. Sometimes we do it with our spouse. You remember early on in marriage? This is kind of a little side note, but it has a little bit of relevance. What's wrong? Oh, nothing. It's nothing, right? It's not nothing. There's something. And so sometimes. In our lives and with God and even in our relationships, the reason we don't want to ask questions is because we're fearful of what the answer is going to be. And if it's an unwelcome answer and it's not what we really want to hear, we don't ask it. Again, I remind everyone in the room this morning, they're asking one another, what does he mean by this? Who should they be asking, what does he mean by this? Jesus. So watch what happens in our lives. Uninformed, confused people turn to other uninformed and confused people to try to find spiritual answers. And you can't find it. None of them knew what he meant. And yet none of them asked him what he meant by it. There are at times hard questions we ought to ask God regardless of whether we really want to hear the firm answer or not, because what we need more than anything is His Word of truth. Because when His Word of truth comes, we embrace this reality, John 8. You will know the truth, and the truth what? What could have set them free walking to the Garden of Gethsemane on this night? Just stopping the party and saying, can you explain? But I want to show you the tenderness of Jesus. So they've turned to one another to ask other confused, uninformed people who don't have the right biblical perspective of this for the answer. And yet in the tenderness of the moment, Jesus doesn't belittle them. He knows what's in their heart. And he's going to address the question that they're wrestling with. And I love this reality about Jesus here that we see. Easily, he could have knocked on all their heads and, and that was pre-Back to the Future days and gone, McFly! He, he could have done that. But he didn't. 
He just tenderly says, hey guys, is this what y'all are talking about? Is this what you're wondering about? Well, let, let, me, let me tell you what this means. And if our perspective of God is just constantly harsh, likes to yell, likes to get on to us, likes to belittle us, then we have a false perspective of Him. Now, Jesus was tough with the hypocritical religious leaders. He was incredibly tender with the brokenhearted and the confused, wanting them to, to understand what they needed to understand. So we must be careful. I just remind us that one confused disciple should not turn to another confused disciple for direction and understanding. We should turn to Jesus. Here's a verse that answers this. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. And because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So they're struggling with the words a little while. And I just remind us that He knows us. He knows us in every kind of way. Jesus knows us. He knows what's in our heart. He knows what's in our minds. He knows what robs our sleep. He knows what is the condition of our marriage is. He knows our secrets. He knows our struggles. He knows our hidden pain. He knows our past. He knows our doubts that we struggle with. He knows the great concern that they have about what is He talking about. And in the midst of this, He who knows our hearts best speaks to them to address this issue that they are wrestling with. He is ever the life reader and the life healer. That is who He is. And so in light of that, because He knows all things, He is at work always in everything that is going on. And He knows they need Him to address the little wild statement so that they can understand what they are wrestling with in the moment. And so He will speak answers into their questions. And again, he knows that they're struggling with all this. And so tenderly, he doesn't belittle them, but he aims to help make them aware of, of what they needed to, to understand. And his patience in their confusion and ours is so glorious to help us get to the place where we understand things. I'm reminded of Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Listen to these words, Psalm 103, 14. For he knows our frame. He knows what we're like. He knows our condition. And he remembers that we are dust. And we need him to sustain us and to help us. So we are to be marked by knowing and pursuing and, and yet even that moment, they're not doing any of that and Jesus tenderly speaks because He knows their heart. Now let's look at the fourth thing this morning in 20 and 21. Let's talk about the initial and ongoing perspectives of the cross and so He's going to speak about the cross again here. So verse 20 and 21, read, read, read that with me again please. Truly, truly, I say to you, by the way, that's the 25th time in the gospel, 25 times in the gospel of John, he says, truly, truly. So truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Truly, truly, I say to you, this truly, truly, 25 times in the Gospel of John can be translated, amen, amen, so be it, so be it. Or in other words, this will happen, so this will happen. Or Jesus is saying, man, this is true. This is what is true. And I say to you that you're going to weep and lament and the world is going to be excited about what's about to happen and take place with me. And so the world wants Christ gone from the public square and in private life. 2,000 years ago, the religious leaders in Israel are going to want Jesus gone from their lives. And so let's talk about this ongoing perspective of the cross, the world's response. The world's going to rejoice. Now he's referring to how Israel would respond, how the religious leaders are going to respond. But a lost and obstinate world will find the death of Christ as a sickening blessing. And that's what they did 2,000 years ago. We see the incredible blessing that is connected to his death, but they saw it as something to celebrate, to rid themselves of the presence of Jesus in Israel and in their own lives. And when the world looks at the cross, they're just unmoved by it. And they hold an opposite perspective than those who are saved by grace. So Jesus tells them, listen, the, the world's going to, the world's just going to rejoice and celebrate over what's about to happen with me. And it's just in a matter of hours. And he says, but here's what you're going to do. You're going to respond this way. You're going to cry all weekend. Your heart's going to be so broken that you're going to lament that I'm gone and what's been done to me. And you're going to be sorrowful. I tell you, you spend your weekend weeping, lamenting, and deeply sorrowful. That's a, that's a hard weekend. And that's where they are. They were going to be the most brokenhearted they had ever been in their lives over the next 72 hours. They will grieve deeply over his death of the cross. Peter will grieve the death of Jesus and his great weakness in denying Jesus. It is going to be a rough, tough weekend for these brothers. And the fact that many of us Christ followers go through certain things and we will go through these things, it doesn't remove the reality that uh, th- this reality that we're not ever going to have sorrows. We will have sorrows that will come into our lives. When you love someone, you will have pain, will you not? When you love, there's pain, there's sorrow, there's wrestling with things. And to feel sorrow and even to experience loss does not mean that something unhealthy has come into our lives. It just means that we're living and life is at times tough. Grieving is never an ungodly response. Now, what we do with it, grieving is a godly response at times. When we do it right and we give our pain and we pursue God in the moments of our doubts. John 16, verse 6. Look with me there, just back just a little bit. He said, but because I have said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. I want to make sure you you and I understand their condition. All of these words about his leaving, them not seeing him, 
his dying has pushed all of the words that he's put into their heart out and they've replaced his truth, his word, and put inside their heart sorrow. It's shoved it out. That's what he's Sorrow has filled your heart. I've been telling you these things. You should embrace them, but they didn't. Their heart sunk and they filled their heart with sorrow. And the text reveals why you and I can be sorrowful. And I want to deal with that just for a moment because I think it's important. So they're, they filled their heart. They've allowed everything in, in their heart to be pushed out in the moment to be incredibly sorrowful, including the promises of His rising. That's gone from their heart. It's not deeply set in there. Here's why we sorrow, and I think we have these up on the screen. When our plans end in disappointment, we can be really sorrowful. When our plans end in disappointment. They thought things were going to go different with Jesus. They thought it was going to end different with him. He would conquer Rome. He would restore Israel. And all he's speaking of now is his death and being gone from us. It was not going to go as they hoped. And so they're just incredibly sorrowful. Can you imagine what their heart had been like if they'd have just embraced, even though they didn't understand, embraced what he said and filled their heart with the glorious truth that he said he's going to die and he said he's going to rise again. And so I'm going to fill my heart with thoughts of a resurrection. He raised Lazarus. Why can he not be raised? And if they could have done that in the moment, then their perspective would have been different, but it wasn't that case. And so their plans, according to Jesus, this talk, their plans were going to end in disappointment. Here's the second reason. Christians become, can become sorrowful. It's when we're confused about the Scriptures. It can lead to sorrow that can fill our hearts. So they are, again, wrestling with all of this Jesus speaking to them about Him being arrested and about dying. He has been telling them this. The prophets wrote of this reality. Their issue was this. They understood to a point some of the Scriptures, but not all of them. That is why it's so important that we embrace the full meaning of the Bible. That's why we walk through it the way we walk through it here, word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because when that becomes our focus then we have a better understanding of the big picture of who God is and, and the full counsel of His will. And it allows us when certain things happen and come into our lives to have the perspective that we need. Maybe we don't fully understand everything in the moment, but those moments. And so they're confused because they, they aren't embracing the full counsel of Scripture. And again, you think Jesus has been telling them about the Old Testament prophets for three years? Absolutely, He has. So they've been given it, but they just did not embrace it. Here's a third reason why Christians can become very sorrowful when it seems as if the wicked triumph. You see this in the Old Testament writings. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.15, In my vain life I have seen everything. And here's what he writes. This is one of the things that he's seen. There is a righteous man who walks with God, who deeply loves God, who perishes in His righteousness. 
And then Solomon says, and then there's a wicked man who prongs, prolongs his life in evil doing. And if you're not careful without a biblical perspective, you can look at that and, and become sorrowful and going, why, why do the wicked seem to prosper? You know, Jeremiah wrestled with this. And so in Jeremiah 12, verse 1, he speaks to God and he says this to God. He says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all who are treacherous thrive? In the hours to come, the eleven will wrestle with this. Their hearts will sink a, a bit more because in the hours to come, it will feel this way to them. Jesus is cruelly beaten. He spit on, he's mocked. And you would go, God, what, what, are, you, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? Why, why does it seem like the wicked seem to have their way and prosper? And you and I know the answer to that. God will bring about his justice. And it's not going to be on our time frame. But God will bring about His justice. And so we faithfully live as Jeremiah had to learn. That in the midst of that, you walk faithfully regardless of the evil people. We walk faithfully with God and we trust Him. And so the disciple's sorrow will turn into joy. Do you remember Psalm 23 verse 4? And though I walk... What's the preposition? Through. As a follower of Christ, I will walk through the sorrow of this life. And I will walk through it, not because of me. I will walk through it, David writes there. I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. For you, God, are with me. You are with me. It is your presence that's key. Your rod and your staff, they bring, David writes there, the comfort that I need as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The disciple's sorrow will turn into joy. And so all the excruciating emotional pain that they will feel and they will go through will be gone, will be gone on Sunday night when he just steps into the room and doesn't open a door. And in bewildered joy, they will go, what in the world is happening? And it will overwhelm them in the moment. His risen presence will erupt in their lives as the greatest joy. You see, it's when we encounter the risen Christ that has this transforming power to trade our sorrows and to move them into the greatest joy. So Jesus uses an example here. I witnessed it five times. Not an expert. I saw the anguish of childbirth five times with our five kids. And I saw the, the struggle and about that. And then I saw that immediately as that child is now out of the womb, and is set into by the heart of the woman. The room just changes, does it not? It's just this dramatic thing. 
And so note, note the incredible practicality of Jesus' teaching here. A woman knows, uh-oh, water's broke, whatever the case may be, it's time. And so she knows that, and it comes, and it's, and it's a fight, it's a struggle to get the child out. But when the child comes out, there's just celebration. And so Jesus is telling them, what's about to happen, man, is just like that. I'm going to die. I'm going to be put into the grave. And then there's going to be this glorious reality. This life is going to come. I am going to come out of the grave. I am rising again. And so in a little while, you will not see me. And in a little while, you will see me. And it's going to be just like childbirth where there's great pain, there's great struggle, there's great anguish, there's sweating. And then there's this great glorious joy when you witness that I am alive. That same baby that brings all the pain immediately brings the greatest joy. That event that brings grief will bring joy. And so the cross becomes for us a symbol of great, great joy. Read the New Testament. Are there melancholy words when the writers write about the cross? No. They write about the cross as this glorious triumph. This glorious work that has come in our lives. So, he tells them, listen, the world's going to celebrate this. Your heart's going to sink, but I want you to know this. That it's going to be just like a woman giving birth. You will have joy that I have come out of the grave. We'll finish with this. This joy that is ours in salvation is not just a temporary joy. It is to remain. Look at 22. So also you... Have sorrow now. He's not diminishing. Notice he's not diminishing true sorrow. He's he's affirming they have true sorrow. So also you have sorrow now. And I love he changes it here. Notice what he goes to. You will see me. Notice what he says here. I will see you. I will see you again. And when I see you again, your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. He is stressing here that this is not going to be the end of the relationship road for them. The storm was coming that weekend. It would be violent. It would be destructive. It would be painful. It would be sorrowful. But in time, an abundant joy would be theirs. And in many places around the world, you've probably seen the videos. It's just just like, okay, who would want to live there? And it just needs a big storm to come through. And then days later, everything's green and flowers have, have just come alive and the place is totally transformed. And that's what he's telling the men. Listen, a storm is coming. And you, you're sorrowful now. But I want you to know that you're gonna, I will see you again. And when I see you again, your hearts are going to rejoice. And no one's going to be able to take that from you. You see, Jesus knew that sorrow produced joy himself. Hebrews 5 speaks about that. Hebrews 12 speaks about that. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you will have sorrow now, he tells them. Great promise, what a promise, but I will see you again. The Christian life in regard to biblical community is never a permanent goodbye, but one where we can always say to other believers, I will see you again. I will see you again. So we, we don't say a permanent goodbye. And I love what John writes in 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. There is such a weight and a worth connected to the resurrection. There is a weight and a worth connected to the resurrection. Everything about the Christian faith, everything about the Christian faith rests on the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul boldly states this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. And he did rise. And our faith is hopeful and joyful because he is alive. So on this Thursday night, on Friday night, on Saturday night, on most of Sunday, this huddled, fearful group of people, men, scared has the risen Christ appear in their midst. They will see Him several other times. And then they'll eventually, after He ascends, go to Jerusalem and they'll just wait. And the Spirit comes and this huddled, fearful people are incredibly bold, bold because they have been filled by God's power in the Holy Spirit. And they are transformed. So Jesus tells them, you'll have sorrow now. I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. Some of the very things that bring us such grief also can lead to the greatest of joys. And that is especially true about the cross. Now look at the last words he says there as we finish. And no one. So this is not a hard question, okay? You have to answer out loud. What does no one mean? Okay, thank you. And no one, not our boss, not COVID, not sickness, not a government, not persecution, not the devil, not demons, no one can take this joy from me. Now he's, Strongly referring to salvation because salvation comes to God's people. It cannot be stolen and it's the greatest gift that you and I have been given, our salvation. That we are His people, born again. So how does He turn sorrow into joy that lasts? Let me give you three things as we finish. First one is this. 
He reveals to us the glory of the cross. When you and I get the cross and we get what that means, it's so astounding. God died in my place. I deserve His wrath. And yet Jesus on the cross dies in my place. He takes God's wrath. He becomes the propitiation, the wrath bearer of the Father. He does this. And so when we get the glory of the cross, then, then He takes our sorrows and He turns them into a lasting joy that the work that's been done is not a temporary thing. You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. Secondly, not only does he, he, he turn our sorrow into joy by revealing to us the glory of the cross, but secondly, He turns our sorrow into joy by revealing to us the importance of having an eternal outlook over now, the temporary. In the moment, they're sorrowful. In that moment now, as they walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, they're sorrowful. But they need, they need to lift their eyes up and have a bigger picture. This, this, this walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, what is going to happen on the next day, has been the intended plan of God since Genesis 3, the fall of man. This was God's appointed purpose. Christ was going to come and die in our place. He would put enmity between the woman and her seed and her offspring. And Satan would strike, but Jesus would crush Satan. So we need always in our sorrow to try to take a step back and to look at the big picture that our God is sovereignly in control. Thirdly, here's how He takes our sorrow and turns it into joy. One, the cross. One, by helping us see that God has a bigger purpose than the now. The now will pass. He's got a great future. Thirdly, he reveals to us the glory of the risen Christ. So the cross. Secondly, don't get caught up in the now. Have an eternal perspective in the resurrection. Three times here in these verses we've looked at today, 16 through 22, Jesus tells them that they would see him again and when they would see him, they would have joy. Three times he tells them. You're going to see me again, and when you do, you will have joy, a joy that cannot be stolen. And I tell you, they got to see the real thing. They saw him before he died. They saw him after he died. We just see him through the eyes of faith. But I want to remind us this morning, that's glorious to see the risen Christ in this room today by faith. Peter wrote about that, 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And listen to what Peter says. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and it is filled with glory. So Christ takes our sorrows and reminds us, look at the cross he takes our sorrows and turns them into joy by reminding us, don't get caught up in the now. Sometimes the now is just awful. Let's be honest. Don't get caught just remaining in the now. Take a step back and be reminded God is sovereign. That He came not to keep us in sorrow, but He came to give us life abundantly. And thirdly, He came to reveal to us that Christ has conquered the grave. He's conquered the grave. 
Over my lifetime, I read a lot about G. Campbell Morgan. He's a theologian. He was a godly pastor and Bible teacher. When he was 30 years old, he and his wife lost their daughter, young daughter, in death. Forty years later, he was preaching one night somewhere on Christ raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And as he preached that sermon, he made reference to the loss of their daughter a decade before, who in spite of their prayers was not healed. And so he said in the sermon, he said, you know, she has been with him for all those years as we measure time here. And I have missed her every day. But his word, and he was struck by something that Jesus said to Jairus. Believe only, Jesus said. And, he, and G. Campbell Morgan said that phrase, believe only, has been the strength of all those passing years. Six months after his daughter's death, he wrote in his diary, Today I'm 31 years old, and surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. There had been no accidents, all under the Father's government, and all best. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of this. We're not going to know all the whys and all the answers to everything here. Just not. But if we trust what the Old Testament teaches about God and we trust what the revelation of God in the New Testament is, we know this, that for His people, God is always good. Just always good. And we'll have moments like G. Campbell Morgan. I can't fathom what that's like. Some of you have gone through things that others have not gone through. And you are an encouragement to us to have a perspective of how do you have faith like that in the midst of something like that. And it reminds us that ultimately, when our faith rests in the glory of God, that our joy cannot be stolen. Boy, out there in this world, everything's stolen. But nothing connected to our faith and the security of our salvation and the joy that can be ours can be stolen. Is that not good news today? What incredible, incredible news. Just as confused men on a Thursday night, maybe it's Friday morning now, and they're walking in just the deep darkness of outside of Jerusalem, telling them that they can have a joy that will last. Let's pray.